I'm going to ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 and forward. We'll dismiss our four and five-year-olds at this time to, uh, to head to Children's Church. And join Judy and Don going out the doors to my, li- my left, your right. Mark 6, 45 through 52 is where we'll be this morning. I had a dream the other night. And uh, maybe it was all the food that I was eating, uh, but I had a dream, and uh, I woke up, and I woke up with this sense of urgency, but also a sense of thankfulness. My dream was that I was sitting at a large table. <laughs> Where'd that come from, right? Although there was, at this one, there was no, no food whatsoever. Instead, it was lined with guests on both sides, and the chairs just seemed to go on and on. And seated at every one of those seats was someone that I went to high school with. And I've never been to a high school reunion. I haven't seen a lot of these people for years and years. But I was seated at the table with all of these people. And David Platt, who's the pastor of uh, Brook Hills, the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama, was seated at the head of the table, and I was immediately to his left. And we were looking out at all these people that I went to high school with. And I proceeded to tell them what I did now. I'm a pastor. And I remember the place erupted with laughter. It was sad. And I remember even one girl that I went to high school with, she stood up and threw her hands on the table and she threw them down and she said, shut up. And I looked down at at, uh, David Platt and David Platt just nodded at me. And I woke up. And that was my dream. Let me tell you why I woke up with a sense of urgency. I woke up with a sense of urgency because I was made aware of the time that I had wasted. All those days that I had lived for myself and done nothing except pursue the things of the flesh. And then I was hit with this sense of thankfulness that by all means I should be disqualified. By all means, I should have no seat at the table. But when I was not looking for him, he came looking for me. This morning, our text, I think you will see Jesus going, looking for disciples. Let's look at this together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat Go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened." I came to this text, and I I couldn't get it for a long time. I couldn't get it because this is such a familiar passage. This is one of those 
favorite stories of many, many people. If you go out and ask just a, a sprinkling of people, what is your favorite Bible story? I would venture to say that many of them will say, when Jesus walked on the water. And a parallel passage from another gospel writer tells us that Peter even got out of the boat and walked to him. So I struggled as I came to this passage. God, what's the point of this passage? Is this really about what I've heard it preached so many times? God, it just seems that there is so much more. It seems like we are selling it short. Jesus, why? Why did you walk on the water? And then I began to just wrestle through the text, and I began to ask questions, and I let my questions lead me, which is a good way to study the Bible. Just come to the text and ask yourself questions as you read the Scripture. And the first question I ask myself is, why did, why did Jesus make the disciples leave? If you'll remember, if you'll look back to the, what had just happened right before this, we looked at it last week, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 men. Not counting all the women and children, somewhere around twenty to 25,000 people he's fed with five loaves and two fish. The Bible says that right after that, Jesus makes his disciples leave, makes them get into the boat, go to the other side. Why does he make them leave? Why not stay there? It would seem like that would be a wonderful place to stay for a while. It seems as if there are many, many, many ministry opportunities right there. Why does he make them leave? I think we're given some clues as we look through the Scripture. In fact, John, in his account of this, this, uh, this story or this event, he points out that Jesus perceived, in John six fifteen, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And Jesus knew there was, that when he fed these 25,000 people, that they were so radically convinced of his abilities, not of his deity, but of his abilities, of his greatness, that they were about to forcibly come and take him and make him be their king. And it wasn't time. And that's not really all of why he came. He did come to be king, but not just a king. And so John gives us a clue there as to why he made the disciples leave. He makes them leave because the people are thinking it is time for us to be rid of this Roman rule over us. We now have one who can deliver us. And the disciples are still not convinced of who he is. They still don't understand who he is. And so they begin to possibly, I think, listen to the crowds. And they begin to say, yes, this is it. This is why he's come. This is why we've been following him. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. And before they can go too far with it, Jesus makes them leave. Others, if you'll remember, this, this miracle of the loaves and the fishes came right after the story of Herod, thinking that Jesus, who he had heard about, was John the Baptist raised from the dead. You remember, others thought that he was... Elijah, some thought he was one of the prophets raised from the dead, but Herod thought he was John the Baptist. And so there's, we, we find ourselves in this passage surrounded by all of these thoughts, all of these postulations about who Jesus is. He's the promised king that will deliver us from the Romans. He is John the Baptist raised from the dead. No, he is Elijah. No, he is one of the prophets. And you get down to verses 51 and 52 in our text, and they are the keys to understanding this passage. 
In verse 51, at the last part of it, it says, They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. All of that brings us to the point to understand that Jesus makes them go away because all of these ideas floating around about who he was were false. And the disciples themselves didn't even understand yet. They didn't understand the great miracle of the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. What was the purpose of the miracle of the loaves? It was to show them he was God. But they didn't get it. When he takes the five loaves and the two fish and he lifts his eyes toward heaven and he prays and creates bread and fish to feed the multitude, no one could do that but God. But they didn't understand it. Not only that, their hearts were hardened. They were becoming listeners of the speculations around them. Maybe he is John the Baptist. Maybe he is Elijah. Maybe he is the king to deliver us from Rome. And so Jesus makes them go away. He wants them, I think, the point of this entire passage, and I want you to know as your pastor, the reason I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible is so that you can get the point of the passage. You don't need what I think it means. We need to hear what God wanted us to hear. And I think when you look at the Scripture as a whole and you study this together and you ask the questions, I think Jesus here is dealing with a group of men who He has set His eyes on to make them disciples and they don't understand yet. And they are about to fall victim to a false understanding of who He is so He sends them away. Jesus wants them desperately to know who He is. If you know who Jesus is, I mean really know who Jesus is this morning, it is because he has set his eyes on you and revealed himself to you. There was a line in the video, the Lottie Moon video, the testimony of of the man there who is persecuted for his faith, and he says, I was not looking for him, but he came looking for me. It's a beautiful thing when Jesus comes looking for you. When Jesus wants you to understand who he is, let me give you four things quickly out of this text. When Jesus wants you to understand who he is, he will send you into situations where you are desperate for God. Now, I was careful in the way I worded that. I didn't want to word it, he will send you into situations where you are desperate for him. I want you to see that he will send you into situations where you are desperate for God, knowing that he is God. Immediately, the Bible says there in verses 45 and following, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. When they get out there in the middle of the sea, the Bible says that the winds are against them. This particular sea was several hundred feet below sea level, and it was known for violent windstorms that would come up, and the winds would come sweeping down those hills and violently erupt in a storm on the sea. And even though many of these in this boat were fishermen and used to it, this was a particularly strong storm. And they find themselves in the middle of it, right where Jesus sent them. The Bible uses the word made there. Jesus made them get in the boat. He made them go to the other side. The made there is a word that means that it's to necessitate. 
to compel, to drive to. And you can do it in one of three ways. You can do it by physical force, by threats. Or you can do it by begging or pleading with the person to go. Or the dictionary said that I was looking in said, or by other means. Now here's what it means, basically. When Jesus makes them go to the other side, it means that either he physically forced them into the boat and forced them to go to the other side, like he did when he drove those out of the temple, out of the, the money changers out of the temple. Or he verbally coerced them and verbally convinced them that they needed to get away and they needed to go. And Jesus stands there and pleads with them, for me, please, get in the boat and go. Or the other means, I believe, speaks of his deity. Speaks of the fact that he is God and supernaturally, it's not physical, it's not verbal, it is his supernatural right because he is in every way God. He makes them. And I believe that's the reason. That's, I believe that's the how of why he makes them go. Otherwise, how could he make a crowd of 25,000 that is about to take him by force to make him their king, how could he physically force them to dismiss? How could he verbally convince them to dismiss? I think it points to the fact that he is God. And he demonstrates his deity over the crowd and over the disciples by making them go to the other side and the crowd to disperse and leave. Regardless of how, the point, I think, in this is that he put them into a desperate situation where they would need more than human strength or ingenuity. He puts them out, and it says that they've been rowing for several hours. They're going hard against the wind. And they are rowing and doing all they can just to stay alive. And God will do the same for you. There was an expression that came out of, I don't know which war it came out of, but I think it probably definitely came out of Vietnam and other, other wars where uh, the expression is, there are no atheists in foxholes. Sometimes you find yourself in situations where you don't need another man. You don't need human strength or ingenuity. You need God. And when Jesus wants you to understand who he is, he will put you in situations that are so desperate that you need God. You find yourself in those situations praying, Lord, if you're real, show me that you're real. And when Jesus wants you to understand who he is, he will put you in those situations, desperate for God. Two, he will ask the Father to open your eyes. When Jesus wants you to understand who he is, he will ask the Father to open your eyes and open your ears to who he is. I think that's what he's doing when he prays. The Bible here says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. I asked myself another question. I thought, why did Jesus at this point go up to pray? Why does he send the disciples away? And then when they leave and the crowd leaves, he goes up and has his prayer time. Is this simply about time alone with his father? Is this simply about him practicing what he preaches? I don't think so. I think it was more than that. I think Scripture, again, points to what he was doing. In just a couple of chapters, in Mark chapter 8... We read of Peter's confession where Jesus again brings the question and he says, who do men say that I am? And 
Peter and the other disciples speak up and they say, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets raised from the dead. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ of God. When Luke tells that story, when he gives his account of Peter's confession, he gives us another clue. He says in Luke 9, chapter 8, or verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, and then it follows up with Peter's confession. I think what Jesus is doing here, when Jesus goes away suddenly to the mountain to pray, he's not just spending time alone with his father haphazardly. He's not simply giving us an example to follow of practicing what he preached, but instead he's going and he's praying for these disciples. God, they don't yet understand. God, would you open their eyes? God, would you let them see who I am? Jesus did this often, also in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and he is transfigured, and they see his glory. Luke tells us that he took them up and was praying right before it happened. And I think in that prayer, we, we see that Jesus is praying, Father, let them see. I want to read John chapter 17 for you. And I want you to think about the possibility that Jesus is praying for the Father to open the eyes of his disciples as you listen to this. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I could go on. But in that prayer, he's saying, God, these are the ones whom you have given me. God, I give them to you. Open their eyes. And when Jesus wants you to know who he is, you can rest assured that he is before the Father saying, Father, open the eyes of this one. Give me this one. When Jesus wants you to know or to understand who he is, he will send you into situations where you are desperate for God. He will ask the Father to open your eyes and he will walk on water to wherever you are, to get to where you are. Look at verse 48. In verse 48 it says, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. Three things in this that I see in, in him coming to where you are, even walking on water to get to where you are, is number one, he sees you. 
The Bible here specifically tells us that he is on the land alone and they are in the middle of the sea. I heard different pastors, different preachers give different opinions on this. Some say that Jesus sees with, with his God eyes because he's God and he can see them wherever they are at all times. Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., says that he doesn't believe so. He believes he was up on a high cliff on the mountain and the sea was, was really just a few miles across and it mentions nothing really of a violent storm. It's simply wind. And so he says that he could see from where he was their travail in the middle of the sea. Regardless, the point is this, that Jesus sees you. That when, when he sends you into situations where you are desperate for God and he goes and he's praying for the Father to open your eyes, he never takes his eyes off of you. He sees you right where you are. He watches you knowing exactly what you're going through, waiting for you to get to the exact right point where you are ready for him to come to you. Now, I didn't cook a turkey for Thanksgiving. It's a good thing I didn't. I ate turkey for Thanksgiving. I know I, ate, I actually ate two turkeys for Thanksgiving, not the whole thing, but I ate portions of two birds um, and portion of a pig, too. So, I mean, I'm staying away from passages on gluttony this morning. But I know that because I ate those turkeys, I know that someone did prepare that, and they put that either in the oven or in the deep fryer, and they didn't walk away from it. They watched it. Particularly if they put it in the deep fryer. They, they didn't walk away. They watched it. They would keep coming back and peering in and seeing if it was time yet. Because you can't take the bird out before it's time. And you can't take the bird out after it's time. You have to take the bird out just at the right time. And the Bible here teaches us that Jesus Christ is fully God and He is sovereign. And He is watching you in whatever situation He has sent you into. Whatever's going on in your life, He's watching and He's waiting for you to be at the right point where He is taking you for Him to come to you. All of it, all of what you are going through has its intended purpose. Not only does he watch you, but he comes to you. The Bible says here that he, in the fourth watch of the night, between three in the morning and six in the morning, he walks to them on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him, the Bible says, I, I came to that and I thought, he meant to pass by them? Why did Jesus mean to go by them? Well, it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. It doesn't mean that Jesus set out to, to like skirt them and beat them to the other side. Instead, it means that he was coming alongside of them. He timed it just right. He took the right line to meet them in the middle of the sea. If Jesus wanted to be avoided and he can walk on water, don't you think if he didn't want them to see him that he would have walked a little further away from the boat? But instead, he walks just to the right point where they all see him. He comes to them. He wasn't trying to get past them. You don't have to worry about missing God. You don't have to worry about him missing you because you're not the seeker. He's the seeker. Aren't you glad? If it were left up to you and me to be the seeker, to seek after God, the Bible says there is no such thing. And you know your own heart. 
You wouldn't seek after him. You would seek after all sorts of other things until you needed him. But even then, it would be a false seeking. It would be a seeking what he could do for you in the moment. Romans 3 tells us there is no one who seeks God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that without Christ, without the grace that quickens us from the dead, we are dead. Dead men don't seek after anything. Not only does he see you and come to you, but he also gets in the boat with you. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. What an amazing moment. What an amazing moment that must have been. They had rowed for hours, made very little headway. They were going against the wind. They thought they were going to die there in that, that sea. Jesus was off in the mountain. They didn't really know what he was doing. and They thought that they had been abandoned. And now all of a sudden he comes walking to them on the sea. He, he saw them the whole time. He comes to them. And he even gets in the boat. And when he gets in the boat, the wind ceases. He gets in the boat so that there's no mistake of who he is. They were all thinking that he was a ghost. Can you imagine these grown men, these grown, tough fishermen, tax collectors, um, political zealots in this boat together? They see what they think is a ghost on the water and they begin to scream like little girls. The Bible says they cried out because they were terrified. They were all thinking that he was a ghost. And that's why Jesus told them, it's, uh, it's me. It is I. It kind of sounds like I am. Tell them I am sent you. Jesus says, it's me. He also says to them, don't be afraid. Only the God who controls the wind and the waves can say, don't be afraid. It doesn't do very much good for the man in the boat with you to say, hey, guys, don't be afraid. That's when you just want to say, okay, you sit down or go overboard. We, that's not helping me at all. But when Jesus says to them, don't be afraid, he can put all fears to rest. And when he gets in the boat and the wind ceases, only God can do that. There are a lot of ghosts out there. There are a lot of explanations for divine activity that are being tossed around. There are a lot of things being thrown up as coincidence. There's a lot of things being tossed up as luck. Some would say, well, it was fate that brought us together. There are others who believe and teach karma. That the sum of all of your actions will determine the outcome of your life. Or your next life. And the Bible says none of it is true. There's a lot of ghosts out there. People are calling divine activity, the activity of God, a ghost. It's karma, it's fate, it's luck, it's coincidence. Have you ever stopped to consider that God may really be trying to come to you? That it may be the activity of God that is trying to arrest your attention? God getting your attention. When Jesus wants you to understand 
who he is. He will put you in situations where you are desperate for God. He will pray that the Father would open your eyes. He will walk on water to get where you are. And lastly, he will not quit until fear becomes faith. In verse 51, the last part of 51, the simple phrase is there. It simply says, they were utterly astounded. Now, I wish I could tell you, and some, some of your Bibles may say that they worshipped him in the boat. It's simply just not true. I wish I could tell you that they worshipped him. I wish they had this great epiphany and, and the, the scales fell from their eyes and in the middle of the boat they realized this is not simply Jesus Son of Mary and Joseph, this is not simply a great prophet, but this is the Christ of God. I wish I could tell you all of that, but no. Because it finishes itself out and it says, They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. What it means is they were blown away. They were still asking the question, Who is this that can calm even the winds? It had not clicked yet who he was. But the great news is, is that one day it would happen. One day they would become worshipers. One day they would go from following him as simply their rabbi to following him as Lord and Master. But this was not the night. But you can rest assured that Jesus will not quit until Fear becomes faith. They were afraid still. They were in the boat shaking, thinking, who is this one who's in our boat? You may think that you are here and that you can outlast God. Friend, you are foolish if you think you can outlast God. If God has set his sights on you, there is nothing that you can do to move yourself out of his crosshairs. He is locked in on you and he will not quit until your fear becomes true faith. That's what Romans 8 talks about when it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this morning, I want it to be crystal clear this morning, that Jesus is not out for some casual stroll on the water. This is not about him showing off for the sake of showing off. This is about him setting his sights on these guys. And not giving up until they understood. Some of you are sitting here and you've sat here service after service after service, year after year after year, and you've listened to the gospel and you've thought, I can outlast one more Sunday. 
and you've rejected the true gospel to accept religion. You've accepted church. Church is safe and it's sanitary and I can come and I can leave it behind. But the reality is that some of you in this place, the Lord Jesus Christ has set His sights on you. He wants you to understand who He is. And He will not stop until your fear becomes true faith. He will send you into situations where you are desperate for God. He will pray Father, open their eyes. He will walk across water to get to where you are. He will not stop. You are not God. He is. And the gospel is this. That in our humanity, we were created to represent Him, to be like Him more than all of the rest of creation. But Adam and Eve in the garden rebelled against him. They broke the law that he had given them. And it wasn't simply about stealing a piece of fruit from a tree. It was about rebellion against a holy God. It was about saying, you don't have a right to tell me what I can do. And they did what they wanted to do, what was right in their own eyes. And when they did that, humanity and all of creation fell from right standing before God Sin entered the world, and, and because it did, it's in you and me. And we have a nature that is prone towards sin. We are guilty in our sin nature, and we are guilty because we, like Adam and Eve, have said, God, you don't have a right to tell me what I can and cannot do in this area. I will do what's right in my own eyes, and we have rebelled. And you may say, well, I've never, I've never killed anybody, or I've, I've never done any of those things that are so bad that would warrant that. It's not an issue of what it is. It's an issue of who he is. And you have rebelled against him. And the Bible says he promised Adam and Eve that if they would eat from that tree, that death would follow. And the Bible promises the same thing for you and I. That since we have rebelled against God, death is coming. We are dead spiritually. We have have died spiritually. We have no connection to God whatsoever anymore. We are dead to Him. And there's coming a day of, of death where we will give up our last breath and we will go out into eternity forever separated from Him. No more common grace. No more sun rising on the just and the unjust. No more rain falling on the just and the unjust. There will be nothing separated from God forever. The eternal wrath of God poured out on you in a place called hell. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners, while we were rebels, while we rejected Him and said, you don't have a right, I'll do what I want to do. While we were rebelling against Him, He sent His own Son to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, to live a life of no sin, but take the penalty for all the sinners in the world, to have the wrath of God poured on Him on the cross. To give up his life, to take your death, to take my death. He took it. He was placed in a tomb. And the Bible says that on the third day, he was raised from the dead to conquer death once and for all. He has delivered us from sin. He has delivered us from death. He has delivered us from hell and the grave. But you don't get that just by coming to church. 
You don't get that by walking an aisle. You don't get that by going through the water. You get that by saying, I'm not God. You are God. You've been pursuing me. God, I surrender. Forgive me of my sin. and Come into my life. Live through me. You are my Lord and Master. I understand now who you are. And today I want to invite you. I want to invite you to step out of complacency. I want to invite you to ask Him to forgive you. To admit to Him that you understand who He is. And I want to invite you to come by faith alone, in Christ alone, and be made right before God today. Let's pray together. Jesus, oh, God, I thank you that you are not about casual strolls. But God, you have... You've come to us. You've come after us. You pursue us. And God, right now, I know that in this room, there are people that are lost without you. And God, I know that they know you have been pursuing them. And God, I pray, Lord, this morning that they would come to understand, they would come to know, God, that you really would make the scales fall from their eyes, that you would breathe new life into them this morning. God, that they would be saved today. Lord, for those who are here that, that already know that experience, God, I pray that you would cause us to be a thankful people. That you would cause us to never get over the fact that you walked on water to get where we are. That you got in our boat and you caused the wind to cease. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. And amen. And amen.